Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today in our Middle Brow series, I will be joined again by my friend Pete Spiliakos to continue, in a way, our body cop action comedy conversation. We've done a Christmas podcast on Lethal Weapon, and we had so many thoughts on the Lethal Weapon 2 sequel, and in a way, more broadly, the problems of action comedy as a genre, what violence and evil look like on screen, that we thought we'd do another conversation. Pete, Thanks a lot for joining me again. I'm glad that we've had such a runaway series of thoughts on this that we've got another thing planned now with Little Weapon 2. Tell me, how did Little Weapon 2 become such a spur to thought for you? Well, what happened was we were going to do a podcast on Little Weapon. You know what? I saw Little Weapon 2 when I was a teenager and I didn't like it. So why don't I watch it again just to be sure? So I watched it again and I liked it a lot better. I still don't think it's a particularly good movie, but it wasn't nearly as annoying and tedious as I remembered it being but then at the end when i was watching it i saw the credits and i saw that the screenwriter credits were shane black and warren murphy and i'm like Warren Murphy. Now a whole lot of things in the script that didn't necessarily make sense to me before. Now they make sense. Now I'm a big Warren Murphy fan. I've read a lot of Warren Murphy books. I've read The Grandmaster. That was great. I've read a lot of his destroyer novels. I mean, I brought a Warren Murphy novel with me on my honeymoon. Now, I also brought my wife, but I, uh, but I did bring one of those books. So I remember reading, you know, sitting down on the beach, reading one of those novels, really enjoying. It. And, you know, a lot of the themes from Warren Murphy's books, especially from his destroyer novels are in Lethal Weapon 2. He recycles a lot of the same ideas from his destroyer novels into the movie. And I, I thought it was really interesting about, you know, talk about what works in the movie, what doesn't work in the movie. And there are some things that really, really don't work in the movie. But it also incorporates a lot of themes that Warren Murphy had written into his destroyer novels. And I thought that was that that bore some examination. What does this movie say about justice? What does this movie say about institutions? What does this movie say about the rule of law? What does this movie say about how men relate to each other, which is a theme in Lethal Weapon, but also Riggs and Murtaugh, as close as they are in Lethal Weapon, they're a lot closer in Lethal Weapon too. And that's also the theme of one of Warren Murphy's books. And also, I mean, Warren Murphy was writing buddy action comedies before buddy action comedies were a Hollywood genre, but he was writing them as men's adventure novels. So when he was writing Lethal Weapon 2, he was writing something that he knew very well. He had written at this point dozens of buddy action comedies, only instead of it being Riggs and Murtaugh, it was Remo and Chun in his Destroyer novels. And he brought a lot of the same ideas to Lethal Weapon 2. And also, I mean, there's a lot of irony about the way he did it. Like Warren Murphy had certain characteristic themes in his Destroyer novels, and some of them are are used in Lethal Weapon 2, but also some of their choices were interestingly strategic in how they applied those themes to Lethal Weapon 2. I only learned about the Destroyer series of Warren Murphy novels from you, and I started reading Mugger Blood on your recommendation, and I began to see why this might be tied in to everything we've been talking about. Also, when we talked about Die Hard, about the action movie, the crime waves in America, the ups and downs of these genres for that reason, and of course, where they take their place in the social class structure of America. Warren Murphy is lower class taste. Nobody in the upper classes of America would admit to reading Warren Murphy or to have heard about it. If they read Mugger Blood, they would say this is the most evil racist thing. You couldn't get away with saying, well, it's actually nuanced and ironic or satirical. No, it would just be burnt. Whereas Lethal Weapon is somehow middle brow. It's acceptable to the great white audience. In 1987, Lethal 
weapon made something like 130 million dollars around the world and the dollar meant a lot more than it does now in 89 the second lethal weapon movie was twice as successful made more than 200 million dollars twice as successful in america twice as successful in the rest of the world this was uh, an enormous hit these things were done on incredibly small budgets so they made something like 10 times the money they cost to make it was the peak of the genre partly because of the genre they didn't have high budgets even the budget shows you that the genre was really barely acceptable as a middle-class entertainment. But the success with the audience made it, by definition, a middle-class pastime in America. And that was an elevation. You know, It's not high-class. I'm not sure there's ever been any high-class or high-brow action movie, at least before the superhero movies of uh, Christopher Nolan or some of his noirs. Those, I guess, would be the closest thing you can get. But Lethal Weapon seems to be a class above Warren Murphy novels. And yet, uh, writer Shane Black and Warren Murphy were fast friends. I'm a big fan of Shane Black. I've seen his movies. I've written about them. But I didn't notice until you pointed it out that this was the only time he had a co-screenwriter. And this guy was a a novelist whom I later learned was a close friend of his. They did this together on purpose. And indeed, it seems like it brought something to the Shane Black style of writing that fits very well with the concerns about crime and, on the other hand, the concern about classing up this kind of story so that it passes muster with uh, liberal elites who, at some level, simply pick who is an okay villain and who is not an okay villain in Hollywood, etc., etc., etc. So maybe uh, we should do it this way. I'll uh, very briefly outline the plot of Little Weapon 2, and then you outline the Remo Chun novels in the Destroyer series of Warren Murphy to clue our audience in. As you said, Little Weapon 2 features a much closer relationship between our protagonists. Indeed, it sets this pattern for the sequels where the movie starts, they're driving in their car, they're on the chase, they're on the hunt, they're having fun, but also doing dangerous things together. At this point, they are one. As you said, they're one soul in two bodies, you could say. And they're chasing these villains who turn out to be uh, Afrikaners, South African, vaguely albino racists who are trafficking in corrupt gold, you know, these Krugerrands, gold coins, and they don't make the bust exactly. They can't catch these guys. The bad guys get away after a street fight in downtown LA, gunfight in the streets rather. And on the other hand, the cops do get the gold. So now they have something the criminals want. But of course, these are action heroes. They make a noise. There's diplomatic repercussions from South Africa. There's problems with having shootouts in the streets. They get demoted. They get put on this detail. They're going to have to look after a witness in police custody who has to be protected in order to testify against some kind of mob conspiracy. And that guy turns out to be Joe Pesci in one of his comedy roles, a complete loser CPA, incredibly repulsive character. It's just a fast-talking kind of low life, but on the other hand, funny. And the case of the CPA who has to testify turns out to be connected with the other case of the South African drug dealers they turn out to be. They're trying to launder money through America. It's a whole conspiracy thing. And all of a sudden, Mel Gibson and Danny Glover have to face off against these people who have not only a paramilitary, but diplomatic immunity in LA. And the rest of the story turns out to be about how, on the one hand, Briggs seduces one of the South African ladies who, after all, just wants to be part of American life, where you have all of these freedoms, and Mel Gibson uh, in the, the part of the bargain. And on the other hand, Murtaugh gets to stand for uh, the dignity of Black people against these evil racist South Africans. In Lethal Weapon on his fridge, Murtaugh has this poster with something against apartheid. Apartheid was a really big cause in liberal America in the late 80s, since liberals couldn't say that the 
Soviets are evil, like Reagan did. They said, actually, the, the South African racists, they are the evil regime. It's not, I don't know, some communist country, much less an evil empire. It's these guys. And so this was a very big deal. And as a result, the movie has to give these two guys the, the very similar motivations when they don't have anything in common. But in terms of the specific crime, well, for Murtaugh, it's personal because he's black and these people are racists. For Riggs, it becomes personal when they kill his South African mistress for, I guess, treason. Okay, one thing, I'll interrupt you on one thing. I remember as a kid, I didn't have a lot of one thing that really bugged me as a kid, there's things I like about this movie, but they're about to kill his South African mistress. But then they just gratuitously tell him that they killed his wife in the Lethal Weapon prequel that was never filmed. I hate that Black and Murphy included this completely gratuitous, completely inauthentic raising of the stakes in this movie. I mean, I remember watching in the movie and just laughing that this villain is monologuing about how he killed Riggs's wife in a way that made no real sense, except to give us one more reason to hate him. Part of it is I, I was just wishing that there was a director's cut where he just started confessing to more things that people were mad about. You know, it's like, we're also responsible for the Titanic, the Hindenburg, disco music, new coke, all of that was us, Riggs. All of that was us. Even as a kid, I recognize this is just terrible and fake. Yeah, so here you, you begin to see a, a massive problem. There is something of comic book villainy in this movie in a way in which it simply did not exist in the, the first Lethal Weapon. Now, there were weird scenes in Lethal Weapon that were getting close to maybe parody, like when there is this Chinese fellow with a Japanese name doing electroshocks to Mel Gibson, this could go sideways. Or when the general CIA villain has one of his henchmen played by the mean-looking Gary Busey put his hand over the flame of a cigarette lighter to prove his endurance and his obedience. You're getting close to caricature there, but Lethal Weapon 2 is, is a lot less like an action movie and a lot more like comic book villainy where as you say suddenly these secrets from the past emerge and it begins to be a little too close to soap opera well there's also like there's another scene earlier in the movie where they're introducing the main villain the leader of the white south africans he's in his office which just it could not be a particularly functional office you couldn't imagine somebody doing work in this office it's just too damn dark but the thing is, there's shadows everywhere. There's an eagle behind him that looks kind of like a right eagle, but it isn't really. And it's obviously meant to be inspired by like Triumph of the Will. There's a little bit of Blade Runner in it. And there's also a little bit of Parallax View. And, and I'm just thinking, this is the most evil room I've ever seen in my life. The evil interior decorator that this South African guy hired for this room really put all his effort into it. And it's, it's one of those things where I'm watching it and it's almost laughable. You're trying too hard. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things to like about the movie. I like the casting. But yeah, in Lethal Weapon, the exaggeration was dramatic without tipping over into bad comedy. Whereas in Lethal Weapon 2, it steps over from heroic proportions to outright caricature. Yeah, I think that's exactly the right point that you, you get this sort of thing that I believe also is just our politics and even our public discourse is just too full of anyway. The just hints of Nazism everywhere. Can't disagree with somebody while calling him Hitler is what Little Weapon 2 seems to be all about. 
And it's at times more comedic than Lethal Weapon and brings out much better how good Danny Glover and Mel Gibson are acting together since they don't have the standoffishness that was necessary in the getting to know each other movie. With Little Weapon 2, you can see why these people won over the audience and it became this whole series in the 90s and it rated more than a billion dollars. They're really good together. They're really funny and they are plausibly working class men. They have an all-American appeal. And at the same time, you get this sense that these people are getting into crazier and crazier trouble that you wouldn't predict by looking at their faces, so to speak. If you talk to this guy for five minutes, you wouldn't believe the stories he has to tell. It's, it's, it's that kind of relationship, that kind of friendship. But on the other hand, the villain they're supposed to face off against is, in, in a way, you know, it, it, as foreign policy threats South Africa means nothing, really. It's not a threat in any way. And on the other hand, symbolically, it turns into something that's very cartoonish, which is an odd thing because it seems to be meant so seriously. It's not meant to be funny. It's not meant to suggest that, you know, this isn't such a serious story. This is the light sequel where we just want to see this happen and nothing really important is going to happen, but it's going to be a whole hell of a lot of fun. You've seen Briggs and Murtaugh do drama, but not all days are like that. Some of their days, it's lighter fare, but it's much funnier. You the think they go in that direction from the beginning, which is very exciting, but it doesn't seem like it has any high stakes. But then when you have this contrast between the Joe Pesci character, who is just very stereotypical and crass, but you know, uh, quite funny because they do kind of Three Stooges routines in the hotel room, slapping the guy around, very uh, Larry Curly and Mo. And on the other hand, the murderous Nazis from South Africa tie up uh, Murtaugh in his home and scare him about his kids, but actually just let them go, or all, all sorts of other scenes that are supposed to be incredibly villainous, but turn out to have absolutely no consequences, that you begin to see that there's a real problem with making action movies in America with identifying villains. What is evil and dangerous and might need killing and reasonably threatens your life and then the life of decent or even heroic people. If you come up with cartoony answers, you're going to have very real problems. But the great success of the movie, on the other hand, aside from people loved these characters, and I think they loved the Joe Pesci character as well. Aside from that, I think what that success suggests is that to some extent the audience was in the mood for parody. They didn't want another tough movie. They didn't want what Shane Black wanted to write. They got, again, that other writer, Jeffrey Bohm. He made it much funnier. Shane Black actually quit production. He got away, and then these people made the movie the way they did it. So it's a much less happy collaboration, much less happy mix of the dark and the funny elements of action comedy. And in a way, the weird thing is that you'd expect it to be an over-the-top action movie, but it's over-the-top in the direction of caricature, actually. Somehow the comedic element completely dominates because it becomes impossible possible to believe that there is such a thing as evil. I think this ties in with Warren Murphy and the Destroyer. So just to give a quick summary of the Destroyer. The series started in the early 1970s, so it's the peak of the crime wave. But the story begins in the early 1960s, where President John F. Kennedy calls in this guy, like Harold W. Smith. And Harold W. Smith is the embodiment of like wasp elite respectability. He's the guy who's going to do the right thing. If there's one person you can trust in America, it's Harold Smith. And what John F. Kennedy tells Harold Smith is that the constitution doesn't work. It's too easy to get around it. So what you need is you need somebody who can get rid of the people who get around the constitution so that everybody else can live within the constitution. 
So what Harold Smith does is he hires the world's greatest assassin, Chun, who's the master of the ultimate martial art. There's a fictionalized martial art called Sinanju. It's magic. It's super martial arts. It's all you need to know. And he is training an American named Remo Williams to become this assassin. And Remo Williams and Chun are taking out all these enemies of the American regime. These are people who are getting around the Constitution. Now, these villains are sometimes oil companies. They're sometimes defense contractors, like in the Remo Williams movies. Sometimes they're black radicals. Sometimes they're muggers. The whole point is that you know, they, they find different enemies. When you look for deeper themes, well, let's just go back just one sec. The first Destroyer book, Create a Destroyer, it's really kind of mediocre. They're trying to find their formula and it's a pretty standard violent guy kills criminals, catharsis, low class book. The second book, Death Check, they're a little closer to finding their formula. And in Death Check, what they find is they're a lot better than just violent movies if there's a satirical level. So in the second book, in Death Check, they are satirizing into intellectuals, think tanks, utopian communities, Nazism, all of these things are being confronted. These are enemies of the American regime, but they're also being mocked and Remo Williams is killing but they're still not really there. They found that the combination of violence, martial arts, mythologizing, and satire works, but there's something missing. And then in the third book, they found the formula, which is you add in all those other elements, and then you add in a focus on the relationship between Chun and Remo Williams. And that relationship that develops is one of love, where they're constantly mocking each other, and they're constantly playing jokes on each other, and they're constantly calling each other names. But at the same time, these are two men who their common experiences have become more and more like each other and who also deeply love each other. And those elements were the ones that jailed in this very successful men's adventure series that was more than merely just a lowbrow men's adventure series. Now, the way this ties into Lethal Weapon 2 is the theme of Lethal Weapon 2, if it can be said to have one, is what do men of justice do when they are set against the law? In other words, you know, Riggs and Murtaugh are about justice, but the law prevents justice because these guys have diplomatic immunity. So now, if Warren Murphy's books can be said to have a theme, that theme is that in order for the law to survive, there needs to be an unaccountable, totally uncorruptible authority outside of the law for those who are able to manipulate the law to their advantage. And those themes from The Destroyer are actually right there in Lethal Weapon 2. Now, once again, in The Destroyer novels, he deals with it through multiple examples. You know, in, in Mugger Blood, Mugger Blood actually, it's criminals, but also people who make excuses for criminals. In other books, it's defense contractors. In some books, it's evangelical Christians. In other books, it's black psychologists, black liberationists, feminists. I mean, they find multiple enemies. And basically what they did for Lethal Weapon 2 was they took this basic theme. What does justice look like when the law gets in the way of justice? Do we just accept it or do we actually do something about it? Do we work outside the law in order to get justice? In this movie, just like in the Destroyer books, people choose justice over law. Now, in the context of the 1980s, these are extremely, extremely reactionary themes. So if, you know, there was a mugger who had gotten away with something and, you know, the law, we can't touch him, and you shoot the mugger, then at that point it's, oh my God, that's evil, we'll choose civil liberties. Now, what Shane Black did was that he chose a set of villains 
where the people who would usually object on civil libertarian themes didn't feel comfortable doing so. I mean, let's get, I looked through some of the reviews. No one's like, hey, wait a minute. They're violent. They're causing an international incident. They're killing people extrajudicially. This is terrible. The usual suspects didn't have a particularly big problem. With so basically what he did was he created a movie about what in the context would have been reactionary themes, but they diffused the potential backlash by picking acceptable villains, even though the basic idea is the same. Yeah, I think that's right. This important distinction between the just and the lawful. Let me put it this way. You could say that from the point of view of the storytelling, the villain in the Little Weapon movie only appears in these two scenes. It's the feminist psychologist lady at the station who's trying to get the rigs fired or maybe, I don't know, put into an asylum into therapy. No rigs, no story, nothing happens. That's the problem. It's what's really at stake. Are men ever going to be able to do justice? In a way, for America to do justice to rigs, they have to let him be a super cop because it's what he's great at and it's necessary. He's not crazy in thinking that the country needs him. He's not making it up. He didn't cause the problems America suffering from that he might fix. The country really does need him and he really is as good as he thinks he is. Murto at some point asks, are you as good as you think you are or are you just crazy? But the Riggs is confident. He says, you know, you'll have to trust me on this one. Well, the feminist psychologist would not have trusted him. And indeed, that's Riggs's problem. Nobody in the station trusts him. One big reason for that is that he's excellent and they're ordinary. And if you're going to have a police force, they're going to be ordinary people. But they need some excellent people among. It doesn't work otherwise. You have to somehow do justice to those people. And there you see that in that situation, can the law really be just? No. It's it's only in the action movie, which is somewhat fantastic. It's made up that the ordinary people and the excellent people can get along. Then there are no great conflicts there. Nothing tragic happens, etc., etc. But otherwise, there will always be a conflict. Can the law really do justice both to ordinary people and to extraordinary people. It starts with the classroom where some kid is getting bored because he's just much smarter than everybody else and he's already solved all these things. What do you do for that kid? Or on the other hand, maybe the kids who are mentally retarded, they're, they're in this class, but actually they're a few years behind. They should be in a different situation. Can you do something for them? Or maybe you don't have the resources or the whatever it is you don't know by way of therapeutic methods. Can you really do justice according to the law for everybody? Not exactly. And so this is always going to be a problem. It's a fundamental thing. And you could see how it could be thematized in this sort of movie. The oddity, of course, is that once you jump through all the hurdles set by elite pilots, is about who is an acceptable villain, it's not clear anymore that the distinction between law and justice really matters. It seems like, as you're suggesting, it's more of a license for violence. Will there be anybody complaining about it than, than anything else? And so say that Lethal Weapon did much better to make sure it disarms criticism while deploying its serious themes. In the sequel, they, they seek about for another fantastic villain. It's not going to be CIA rogue generals this time. It's going to be the Nazis from South Africa who are secretly at work and successful in LA. But unless you're willing to believe that, and I, you know, I don't think this was plausible to anybody, you're stuck in a situation where these guys are looking to unleash their special powers and destroy somebody who needs destroying, but they pick on a paper tiger on a cartoon. Well, also, I mean, part of it is like the pretext for them going after them is not convincing in the movie. It's, I mean, okay, so it's all over about a bunch of crew grants. But at the same time, what I think is interesting is that about 10 years before this movie was made, Warren Murphy was vilified as a racist for mother blood, which is basically like Warren Murphy is, I mean, he's part of it is like you talk about how the South African villains are caricatured. 
near like outrageously villainous. Well, he did the same thing in Muggle Blood, only he did it with street gang members. Whereas street gang members in Muggle Blood are even are far more villain than even villainous than even street gang members in real life. They burn a bus full of people in the movie. What creates the dramatic tension in Muggle Blood is that just like the South African villains are caricatured, exaggerated in Lethal Weapon 2, street gang members are caricatured and exaggerated in mugger blood but people are still making excuses for them he finds that the institutions of the city are like oh it's not that bad oh it's straight it's injustice so once again the, he's caricaturing these gang members as a way of criticizing the people who were making excuses for crime who were looking for reasons not to deal with crime to minimize it to dismiss it now what's interesting is mugger blood and lethal weapon both end the same way with the police going on a kill-crazy rampage against the criminals. All he did was switch the villains. I mean, the thing is, he switched black street gang members to South African diplomats. But you still get the same reaction. And the police finally realize that we gotta, we gotta get these guys. And there's that scene where, you know, Mel Gibson's on the phone to, because uh, car phones were new back then, and he's driving, and he's talking to Danny Glover, and he says, I'm not a cop today, Raj. I'm not a cop today. That's like the most reactionary emotion you could express in the context of the late 1980s, that a, a cop has had enough of crime and now he's going to kill all the criminals. I mean, that's like the, the ACLU things not to do. But thing is, since, since these are the villains, it's considered, it's considered okay. But once again, it's the same set of emotions. Criminals outside the law. The law indifferent to the suffering of the innocent. All you've really done is switch out one set of villains with another more acceptable set of villains. But everything else about the situation is exactly the same, as in Mugger Blood. Except, ironically, he created exactly the same situation, but the people who criticized him for Mugger Blood never noticed that was the exact same thing, only he substituted a set of villains that they were happy with, with having killed. And also, the end of the end, the climax, is borrowed from Assassin's Playoffs, where the younger man, Remo Williams, is crippled and laying on the ground. And the older man, Shun or Danny Glover, they have to break a very important rule in order to save the life of the younger man. Shun has the rule that, as the master of Sinanju, which is named after a town, he could never use violence against another resident of Sinanju. That's like the most important rule. But one of these residents of Sinanju is about to kill Rima. And Shun chooses love over law. And he ends up killing a fellow resident of Sinanju and his nephew in order to save Rima Williams. And in the same way, Danny Glover chooses justice over law. You know, one of the most over-the-top sayings, you know, the guy holds out his wallet, a diplomatic immunity. And then, you know, Danny Glover, bang, shoots him. It's been revoked. But that ending is borrowed from Assassin's Playoff, including the end. I mean, where Assassin's Playoff ends with like this kidding around banter between Remo and Chun, whereas at the end of Lethal Weapon, it's this kidding around banter between Briggs and Murtaugh. The only difference is that Assassin's Playoff is kind of a three-way banter where it's Remo Williams, Chun, and Kim Il-sung, the founding dictator of North Korea, where it turns out that Kim Il-sung is actually kind of a cool guy in the context of this book. That's like the big difference. Uh, what this made me think of was that, in a way, Warren Murphy proved that his Critics were just assholes. Once he pulled the switcheroo on them, they weren't mad at him anymore. And as for the North Korean tyrant side, you know, a couple of years back at one of these Winter Olympics, the big elite liberal outlets started talking about how cool the new 
Korean tyrant's sister was. This was a, a thing in coverage. Look at how impressive the sister of the tyrant of North Korea is. Suddenly, a nuclear power that's threatening all sorts of insanities and just ruining and immiserating, terrifying millions of people. All of a sudden, it could be cool. This might be feminist. These sorts of really weird moments this is how I think about the transformation from the destroyer novels to lethal weapon to at a more superficial level, let's say, is a, say, proving a kind of hypocrisy. But at a deeper level, I think what you're saying about the Warren Murphy novels makes a lot of sense. And at some level, this is what the action genre was about in cinema as well. It's about identifying weaknesses in the American way of life and trying somehow to find an extra institutional solution to these problems that at least corresponds to human experiences and to strong passions so that you could say, okay, this is at least a recognizably American understanding of the problem. Obviously, this sort of impossibly impervious and powerful trained assassin Remo is not going to exist. And this is not going to happen. But it does identify all the weaknesses in the regime. And the oddity there is that this is a low-class type of behavior. There is no correspondent to this kind of action story among highbrow literature. There was highbrow literature in America, but it's never concerned with things like how do you preserve the American way of life? What are the weaknesses? What are the dangers we're facing? And what might be satisfyingly artistic and therefore in some sense fake, made up fictional solution that gives a, a sense of coherence to the whole problem? We don't have such things. They exist in middlebrow art. They exist in low-class trashy novels, but not anywhere where sophisticated people, you could say, apply their considerable prestige and whatever powers of art they have. It's a very strange thing, but thinking over the years about the action genre, this came to me and reading the Mugger Blood, uh, I'd never read Warren Murphy before, so it took some shocks of adaptation to figure out what the story is about. But uh, I believe your summary is exactly right. It's somehow an articulation, not just of the outrage that people feel when things go really bad in America. And you read in the papers about all sorts of bad guys getting away with it. Indeed, down from the street gangs all the way to the massive corporations. These are the things that are making people hysterical and conspiracy theory prone today, but we don't have a kind of literature that might assuage and in a way channel these kinds of passions away from conspiracy theory and hopefully in a better direction. These are the kinds of passions that weird late night radio appeal to Americans from the days of Art Bell onwards, right? At some level, there's a road from patriotism, outrage to craziness that politics and art and other pursuits are supposed to prevent. And I think, especially in Mugger Blood, you see Remo, the destroyer, putting aside his very important uh, international missions. He doesn't give a damn about the CIA. He doesn't give a damn about American national security. He, he's just hopelessly hateful that the country he loves so much is just falling apart and decent people can no longer walk the streets. This seems like a personal humiliation for him. And you know, it makes perfect sense in the context of the series that this guy's fighting for his country, he would want that country to be worth fighting for. I mean, if he's doing all this hard work trying to keep America, America, and on the other hand, in the real America, people are too afraid to walk the streets, what is the point? The CIA is a joke when there is this, this terrible crime going around that's already terrifying people. People don't need to worry about nuclear weapons. They can worry about being raped, jogging on the streets of New York City again. So it's a different level of the problem. And again, uh, just much more plausible today than it has been at any time since the early 90s. And so I think somehow thinking about this patriotism and, and the way 
creates outrage, this, the reactionary sentiments that are fundamental to human nature, that's somehow a ground of politics that has been not only ignored, but despised. You could say it's almost ignored on purpose. There is a studied way in which the concerns of ordinary people are treated as they're not real. They're only the sorts of things that trashy novels and, on the other hand, demagogues would touch. But nobody intelligent or sophisticated would ever take these things seriously. And I think once you start down this path, there's also a path from correspondent to the one that starts at patriotism and adds at conspiracy theory, something that starts at sophistication, the way of understanding society that tells you, look, these guys are very angry about something, but that's not the whole story. There's a lot more to what's happening in America. And after all, these people who get angry, they have their own faults. There are other people who are angry at them. This is a kind of a crazy society. They're not innocent. And that sophistication ends up at absolutely despising ordinary people and their concerns. Yeah, what I would say is a lot of our distinctions between highbrow or lowbrow or middlebrow go more to the self-image of the critics than the quality of the work itself. I'm not going to say that the destroyed novel is great literature, but as the early ones that were written by Murphy and Sapper, by the time I was in high school, the novels were being ghostwritten. They're not bad, but they're not particularly special by the late 80s, early 90s when I was in high school. But there was a degree of, among other things, a willingness to borrow from different cultural aspects. Like Warren Murphy, among other things was really interested not just in martial arts, but also in Eastern religion, in Buddhism and Hinduism. And that allowed him to put together different elements in his work in a way that it's looked down upon now, but that's really been lost. Something was lost when we weren't writing books about a Korean super martial artist teaching a white man how to be also be a super martial artist so that this white man can now destroy criminals who are outside the law. And also this white guy might also be the reincarnation of the Hindu god Shiva. That's crazy. But we need more of that crazy. We need a lot more of that crazy where no one's willing to say, hey, Warren, you're not Korean or Hindu. Yeah, it doesn't really matter. He told a great story by putting all together all these pieces that don't necessarily fit together, but artists make them fit together. There's a lot to be learned from how artists can take pieces that aren't meant to fit together, but also put them together in a way that makes sense in the context of this work. And in a lot of ways, that's a lot more creative than a lot of the art that we see today because people are afraid to be creative in that way. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think all of these things point to important stuff. Artists have noticed serious social problems and have figured out a way from ordinary American experience to figure out, to dramatize, to create them as the figure of the protagonist, the troubles he's facing, his motivations, and then spin a story out of that that becomes something of a social phenomenon and has enough of a success. And that points to something on the one hand in American society and on the other hand in the, the, the fundamental problem itself. So I think Warren Murphy gets at something fundamental, that reactionary sentiments are just another way of saying that you love your own family, your own community, you have certain expectations from life, and you could get really, really angry and even violent if they are not met. And furthermore, that the violence in certain cases might be justified and even intelligent. That is, it could solve the problem. After all, even our liberal friends are willing to say that sometimes you have to stand up to bullies. I'm not sure that their choice of which bullies or how to stand up is something I would agree with politically, but clearly the sentiment is universal. Violence is sometimes justified and, and intelligent. But if you think that through as a martial art, you might end up in a situation where you no longer really have the concerns you started with. Being a perfect martial artist might actually separate you from everything that you were trying to defend in the first place. In a different way, that's the problem of the Jedi in Star Wars, right? It turns out that Yoda doesn't really care about this Luke Skywalker's friends. I mean, maybe they die, so what? The training has to be separate from them or 
things like that, or Anakin's tragedy in the prequels. Turns out that uh, these people want him to be a superhero savior for them, but he's got to let his mother die and not care about it. This might not work. But these are obviously intrinsically coherent problems to have. And even the notion that, you know, what do you want when you want this kind of Avenger who's going to save America? You know, you might be asking for divine providence, actually, not just for a manly guy, not just for a problem of justice. You might be looking directly at the religious ground of politics. It's done in these kinds of low stories. It's somewhat caricatural. Obviously, nobody thinks that the god Shiva really exists. But on the other hand, if people did not treat this simply with contempt, they would say, well, if you don't believe it exists, it's just a symbol, right? It's a symbol for what? What does this mean literarily? But nobody would respect this as literature because it's Hugo Williams' destroyer novels. It's supposed to be trash. I'm not sure it uh, lives down to the expectations. Uh, I'm with you on this. I think that these stories, if you think about them for a minute, they appeal to a teenage boy for very good reasons. Teenage boy idealism and the problems of violence are a permanent feature of human nature. And if nobody else is going to deal with them, you know, just thank Warren Murphy for doing it is my suggestion. Well, I would also say that a lot of times Warren Murphy, the, the story novels are a lot as being right wing. And I, I would say that they're more cynical. Because once again, the villains aren't, they're not always from the left. I mean, you have oil companies, you have Christians, defense contractors, whatever. But the message of the destroyer novels, if they can be the early ones, if they can be said to have anything, is that if you tell people that you can't deal with their problems because of the rule of law, eventually people will decide that the rule of law is the problem. And the books themselves come out of this time period. And you have this seemingly debilitated government in the early 1970s. Crime has doubled and then doubled again by the time when these books are first being published. And the government's telling them, oh gosh, gee, we can't deal with this criminal because, and oh gosh, gee, we can't deal with that criminal because, and oh yeah, that institution's been breaking the law, and gosh, gee, we can't do and eventually get people people get tired of that gosh gee and basically the theme of the destroyer novels is that any system can be gaped and the fantastical solution that the destroyer novels offer is that you need somebody outside the system to deal with those who operate it if you can kill those who work outside the system then everyone else can live happily within the system that's the theme that's the superficial lesson but the deeper lesson is that pointing to the rules as an excuse for inaction and impotence by the government is not good enough. And that's the real theme of the novels, that if you use the rule of law as an excuse, if you use the rule of law as failure theater to deal with with bad actors that you really don't want to deal with, and you're using the rule of law as an excuse for not dealing with them, then people are still going to want these problems dealt with. So what you're doing, what you're actually doing is that by using the rule of law as an excuse to not deal with criminals, you're undermining the rule of law itself. That's like the deeper dramatic theme of the destroyer novels. And once again, he applies it to Lethal Weapon 2, because once again, how do they deal with the problem of Lethal Weapon? Well, how do you deal with the problem of diplomatic community? You deal with the problem of diplomatic community by ignoring diplomatic community, just killing everyone. So basically, they deal with the problem the same way Rainbow Williams you also have, once again, more Warren Murphy elements. The movie is much more Riggs and Murtaugh than Lethal Weapon is. They write Murtaugh's family out in the first act. It's just the two of them. You know, I mean, there's Joe Pesci also. But really, it's just the two of them. And once again, even more than in the first movie, they are now one soul in two bodies. I mean, in some ways, Riggs is much more morally outraged at the South Africans than Murtaugh is. Because what you have is you have, there's a scene where they go into the consulate office. Is that what it is? And and you have Murtaugh playing at outrage. I'm going to go to South Africa and my uh, my brothers, I'm going to fight for freedom. He's doing it very operatically. And in the meantime, you have Briggs in the evil office 
where he's mocking these guys as Nazis. And you can tell that, you know, Riggs hates these people at least as much as Murtaugh does, because at the end of the day, these guys represent a great injustice. And these guys are primarily motivated by justice. So the existence of these people, even as much as the crimes outrage them, the existence of these people, these oppressors, makes them angry. And their impunity makes them angry. And that's another theme from the Destroyer novels, that there are some people who are above the law. And yet we're constantly lectured about how important the law is from the same people who let them be above the law. And, you know, just like in a Destroyer novel, the people who are all about justice go outside the law in order to get justice. And it's cathartic. And that's one of the things that was borrowed from the Destroyer novels into the Lethal Weapon novels. Yeah, I think that's very well put. Little Weapon 2 really only makes sense as Riggs and Murtaugh are the hidden kings of LA and they will just not tolerate any injustice. It is an insult personally to Riggs that these people exist there with their evil ways. Just the presence of villainy is enough to, to set this guy off. Then, of course, as we said, they keep upping the stakes by killing the women in his life or something like that. Even retroactively. It's not enough to kill the women he has left with them. They killed your mother. That wasn't a car accident. That was us too, Riggs. Because there's no other motivation you can really offer to say that this guy has personally taken responsibility for all of, I guess, maybe the world or at least just LA. And if somebody came from South Africa and did something unjust in LA, he was going to do something about it. It's not personal with him. It's just like he has embodied the whole city. And I think this is a problem. There was the same problem in, in a much greater movie, the third Die Hard movie, Die Hard with a Vengeance in New York, by which point John McClane has become somehow the spirit of New York City. You know, it's the most 9-11 movie ever made. This guy is indestructible, but is also ordinary. He's kind of downbeat, but he just uh, keeps going like the Energizer Bunny, as he says. And he's just going to avenge the entire city and this catastrophe that's going to collapse, maybe global capitalism, essentially by himself, except he also has a black friend, of course, like Riggs and Murtaugh. It's Bruce Willis and Samuel Jackson instead of Mel Gibson and Danny Glover. And it seems like somehow you run out of plausible villains and therefore also you run out of plausible hero motivations. It's not really personal for these guys. They are no longer characters with motivations. They are embodiments of America or at least of a city, whether it's LA or New York, and they are going to do justice on behalf of the whole without involving themselves at all. In it. The only way that does correspond to experience, and I think it's partly why these things are successes as stories at various levels, is that somehow it corresponds to a desire for pure motivation. You say that from one point of view is the most hateful thing. You think you have a license to kill people. You are a bad person. But from another perspective, I think it's a very popular attitude. These people are pure Avengers. Well, also, in the first Lethal Weapon movie, they try to avoid the tension between law and justice as much as they can. In other words, most of the killing they do in that movie could plausibly be chalked up to exigent circumstance. So, like, you know, even when Murtaugh kills the evil CIA general, the CIA general is trying to run him down in the car. It wasn't like Murtaugh shot him in the back while he was running away. So you can actually... It's not outright murder. And even like Riggs with that guy. I mean, that guy went to Murtaugh's house and they're fighting and the police are letting it happen. And technically it's some kind of violation of the rules. But it's not like the guy's laying on his knees and you shoot him in the back of the head. It's not outright murder. If you stretch it enough, there's self-defense in there. Whereas in Lethal Weapon 2, instead of trying to avoid the outright conflict between law and justice or the way that they do in Lethal Weapon, they're, they're men of justice. But if you squint real hard and you don't really think, you can kind of pretend that Riggs and Murtaugh stay within the law while they're doing it. I mean, okay, maybe they're not if you're a lawyer, but you can fool yourself into saying that they're staying within the law. Whereas in Lethal Weapon 2, they hang a lantern on the problem where 
law and justice are now in conflict. And you've got these guys who have been dealing drugs all over LA. And there's, I don't know what the gold Kubrats have to do with anything, but they're, they're there. And there's some kind of currency speculation. And they've, they've blown up the entire LAPD and they've killed all the women in Riggs's life. And they're about to get away with it because they have diplomatic immunity. At that point, the, the conflict between law and justice has been highlighted. You got, you have to pick between one and the other. And, you know, the, the destroyer books are all about picking justice over law. Whereas, you know, in, in Lethal Weapon 2, they pick justice over law, just as they do in the destroyer books. Yeah, it seems like the major difference has to do merely with picking villains. But aside from all of that, diplomatic immunity as a euphemism for crimes we won't talk about or touch is in a way clever. Like it's a clever pun. It's not something you can hang a movie on, I don't think, certainly not in these circumstances. But it's in a way, it's almost like a caricature. It's America world policemen. These two American policemen are going to solve the South African problem. You know, they just solved apartheid in this movie in two hours with uh, enough murders and explosions, at least at the moral level, they have stuck it to these people. It's a moral victory, don't you know? The way I would look at it, there's a superficial level. Whereas, once again, the other one level is it's America fighting apartheid. It's World War II by other means at a different time. Another way to look at it is every kind of frustration about crime. Now, once again, that's the deeper level. But the thing is, it's, that's the, what might you call the Straussian interpretation of it. That Lethal Weapon 2 is about all forms of impunity. Now, another thing is, most of us have not had our wives killed by white South African terrorists yet. But at the same time, there are people who feel like criminals get away with it. And the metaphor applies to, to everything. But once again, what Shane Black and Warren Murphy did was they pick a particular villain where you could think through the problem without having the usual suspects say, well, what about civil liberties? We can't actually have. It's an acceptable form of police fascism or what they would usually call fascism, but it applies to everything. To be honest, I saw that Barack Obama did something really clever the other day where he was giving a speech in Georgia on behalf of the Democratic candidates. And in the course of his criticism of the Republicans, he applied a critique of one of the Democratic candidates on stage in such a way that the audience wasn't forced to confront it, but it was there and it was sending a message. And, you know, you had, you know, he was he was speaking on behalf of Stacey Abrams, the governor candidate, and Raphael Warnock, the Democratic senatorial candidate. He noticeably spent a lot more time talking about Warnock than about Abrams. But in the course of talking about national politics, he was talking about how important conceding a lost election was. And he talked about how when he first ran for Congress, he lost and he conceded right away. And then when he won the presidency, John McCain very honorably conceded right away in that Donald Trump, who's not dishonorable, refused to concede. Now, once again, there's a superficial level where he's criticizing Republicans and Donald Trump because Donald Trump didn't concede. But on the stage, there's Stacey Abrams. And she also had not conceded. Now, Barack Obama's not stupid. He knew that she had not conceded. So when he's building an entire story about how important it is to honorably concede, and you can't have democracy if people don't concede. So once again, there's a superficial partisan reading, but there's also a deeper trans-partisan reading where he's criticizing his own party and he's criticizing one of the candidates on stage. Everyone knows that she's going to lose in the, in the forthcoming election. And he's sending her a message that you need to concede. We've had enough of this. And the thing is, and I think Lethal Weapon 2 can also work on that same level where 
you've picked a socially acceptable set of villains among a certain among people you accept to be your critics. But the fundamental critique of the limits of the rule of law and the choices that people have to make between law and justice, they don't apply to this. They, they don't apply strictly to this. And to the extent that they apply, they don't usually apply to this. They apply to other things. I think you can actually find like a deeper, a secondary level to lethal weapon to in terms of how it deals with people's feelings about crime in general, not just this particular acceptable set of villains. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think you have pointed this out about Obama on other occasions. He's sometimes subtle and he never gets the credit for it. And so I'm glad that we've had the chance to talk about this. I was surprised very pleasantly. I hadn't heard the speech when you pointed this out on Twitter. Of course, it's a very weird thing to do. You would think that this should be the overt message and there should be another covert message. But I mean, that's the way it turns out. And I think that's the problem in Lethal Weapon 2 as well. They've somehow switched the overt message and the more subtle message that should be in the background. I would say that that's the problem in storytelling. I don't have a big problem with the thematic elements, except for that one where like they take credit for killing his wife, which is preposterous. It's just, it's a mediocre movie. That's wonderfully cast. If you look at the supporting actor when I first started seeing the movie and I saw who the carpenter was, like, I know that guy. He's been in a lot. But the thing is, there's all these supporting characters all through the movie that like you see him. Whoever did the casting for the movie did a wonderful job because the cast elevates the movie. But it's it's one of those things where Shane Black and Warren Murphy were told to make a lethal weapon movie rather than deciding to make a lethal weapon. Where you can see where lethal weapon, where Shane Black had this, these great ideas ideas and he was going to write them down. And in the course of making the movie, they were sharpened. It started with a core of a really great idea. This started with an assignment. And basically it's like, all right, let's make another, we made another Lethal Weapon movie. Yeah, all right, what, what is it even going to be about? Because Lethal Weapon's actually like, it's resolved the central conflicts that each of the characters, each of the characters was facing. Now we got to write one. So I also suspect that's why it borrows from so many of Ward Murphy's previous books, because it's put together like a Frankenstein's monster, because they had no very clear idea. Sometimes when you, t- when you make one movie, the ideas for the next movie are already there and you can build off of it. In this case, I don't think that was there. I mean, I thought Lee Shane Black made Lethal Weapon and neither was going to do well or wasn't and he was going to move on to something else. But now he's told to make Lethal Weapon 2. It's like, oh God, now what do I got to do? Okay, what do you got? And basically, it's like, all right, Riggs and Murta are fighting uh, South African apartheid support. All right, fine, let's put it. Okay, well, then what happens? And once again, that also explains why they're borrowing elements from other works in order to pad out a movie that originally had no real rationale, and you had to create a rationale for the movie before you decided to make the movie. Yeah, I think that's right. Shane Black is not the kind of guy who writes sequels. He's got, uh, it seems like, a million stories about detectives in various decades of LA history doing vaguely sore did sometimes crazy things, but there's something heroic and noble about them. He can do that a lot and they'll always be funny. He's made the career of it since 87, but not sequels. And indeed, uh, faced with the problem, yeah, it's 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 not the kind of job uh, he could do well. And they ended up with this instead. And I think that's a problem for most of these stories that end up getting sequels or too many sequels because there's too great a difference between, as you were saying, what it means to write when you've got an idea and what it means to write when you get an but of course, the industry runs on assignments, as old Hollywood used to do, and can only tolerate ideas here and there, now and then. And if they could somehow manage to make this stick reasonably well, the assignment guys work with the idea guys without embarrassing each other, then I think you'd have the kind of mediocrity you can live. You cannot ask Hollywood to produce uh, great, uh, even actioners all the time. Many of them will stink. Most of them you can hope for will be mediocre. What you can reasonably hope for is to elevate the quality of the mediocre stuff. And then in that way, you know, elevate the taste and to some extent just make it more accessible 
acceptable to this kind of cinema for artists and audiences to agree that they're what the serious problems in American society are just done in a fictional environment with fictional solutions. And that I think is still, as it was before, the, the hope of uh, middle brow art, it still is an incredible appeal, somehow defines American society. We're just not doing very well at it. There's also like another theme from the Warren Murphy books is that it's a centrality of love between two guys. The story books really took off in book three when they realized people really like reading, that Shun and Remo really like each other a lot. And the thing is, they feel a great sense of debt to each other. And that's something that they really lean on in this book. Because, you know, in this, in this, in the second movie, rather. Because once again, they write out everybody else that Murtaugh cares about. It just happens to be the two of them. And you have like lines, like one thing I remember without necessarily like is that, you know, Danny Glover is afraid that he's going to die in the toilet. And Riggs tells him, you're not the kind of guy who dies in the toilet. Now, the joke is, you got to be of a certain age. And Elvis Presley famously died on the toilet. And that was only 10 years after the death of, of Elvis Presley. And dying on the toilet was symbolic of a certain kind of decadence. Elvis Presley had done so many drugs and abused his body so much that he died on the toilet. It was supposed to be a shameful way to die, not because dying in the toilet itself is intrinsically shameful, but because of how he had abused his body, the gluttony that he had, he had indulged in. You know, that's like a scene where, you know, these guys are being willing to be vulnerable with each other a lot more. In Lethal Weapon, the moments of vulnerability are very heightened and dramatic. Riggs putting a gun under his chin, right in front of Murtaugh. There's Riggs telling the story about Vietnam, and even the story about killing Vietnam, telling the story that doing violence is the only thing I'm good at, that's the only thing that connects me to anything. Whereas in Lethal Weapon 2, these guys are constantly willing to be open with each other. We can talk about Warren Murphy, you know, is, you know, these, once again, these were men's adventure novels. These were written for Gen X men in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. It was actually written for boomers and early Gen X men in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. Basically, people are like five or 10 years older than me or older than that. But there's a certain comfort level with emotional intimacy in those books that just are not all that prevalent in a lot of literature. It's within a fantastical context, because once again, these are, these are super martial arts masters who are like hanging out, talking, but also, you know, being really open with each other. But that's another element that Lethal Weapon 2 tries to in, to bring into the book, imparting into the movie. Yeah, I think you're right. There's a big difference between these genres and something I think also to do with the character of cinema. It makes more sense for these people to talk on the written page than it does for them to talk on screen. The presentation is different and that comes with all sorts of demands. You want these people to look a little more like paintings or statues and to act more like that than when it's in a novel. And of course, the novel is private, whereas you go to the movies with everybody else. These are differences in the medium, in the art form, have a lot to do with these different demands, but they are somehow both aspects of this problem, that great friendship between men is in a way the only possibility of understanding yourself through your friend. As you suggested, all these stories are so attractive because they're about how these people discover their similarities and become more similar. That's a form of self-knowledge and it makes for some contentedness. You know you're not crazy. So that's, again, something hard to achieve and somehow harder to achieve nowadays than it was in the days of the action comedy as a genre. And another one of the big questions in popular storytelling, is that possible? That kind of portrayal of friendship that leads to self-knowledge. Well, Pete, thanks a lot for joining me for another Lethal Weapon podcast. I hope we've persuaded our audience that all of these stories that used to be treated with some contempt and maybe just not thought of even among the audience that enjoyed them have themes that speak immediately to American circumstances now as in the 70s, but also deeper themes that just speak to problems in justice, problems in manliness that some level we all confront. You don't need to like the dramatic articulation to respect that somebody put art 
react into this. But I think if, if people see this, they will get more out of it, as people say, and enjoy these things more. So thanks a lot for joining me and going through that. Thanks a lot, Titus. I had a great time. All the best.